Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Good morning, my name is Josh Fulton and I'm one of the Clinical Neurology Fellows working at the Walton Centre. I'm joined today by Dr Holt, who's one of our neuromuscular consultants, who's very kindly going to talk us through peripheral neuropathy. So good morning, Dr. Holt. So we'll, we'll start off with um, some quite broad terms. So what do we mean by the term peripheral neuropathy? Well, it's not a great term in many respects because it's so general, although I mean, it's useful as a very general term. It just means there's a problem with your peripheral nerves. So uh, that means anything outside the spinal cord and brain, really. Um, so it's a very, very vague term. And when people are describing a neuropathy, if, if a student is describing, if saying, oh, I suspect a peripheral neuropathy, I, I really would expect them if, to, to be a bit more specific than that rather than just say that. Although, of course, it's always useful as a buying time to think mechanism if you think, if you start by saying, oh, oh I suspect a peripheral neuropathy. Meanwhile, your, your cogs are turning and you, you're thinking, well, how do I subdivide that further? And we, we often teach our students to think of it in terms of mononeuropathy, which should be quite straightforward. It's just a single nerve upset. And the term itself, neuropathy, neuro refers to nerve, pathy refers to pathology. So it really is very vague. It's just saying um, nerve problem effectively. So you could talk about a mononeuropathy where there's one nerve affected. Um, If there's more than one nerve affected, then we have two distinct terms. One is polyneuropathy, which is where... uh, you're suggesting there's a diffuse problem of the peripheral nerves that may not be affecting every nerve, but is often affecting them in a broadly symmetrical manner. And then there's mononeuritis multiplex, which is a lovely old-fashioned term. Um, The itis would, of course, suggest it's inflammation, and some people suggest until you've proven that, you should say mono neuropathy multiplex but I think that sounds horrible so I, I, I'm quite comfortable just calling it mononeuritis multiplex you can say well this appears to be a mononeuritis multiplex and then of course you can talk about your various tests that you might do or you know, to to characterize that further in practice it can be a bit hard to tell the difference between mononeuritis multiplex and polyneuropathy uh, just because everything deviates from the textbook and of course if you've got a very severe mononeuritis multiplex it may appear pretty diffuse and, and symmetrical uh, likewise, uh, you can get polyneuropathies that are a bit asymmetric and some that are very asymmetric uh, for unclear reasons. So in, I think the basic, often it's because you know, the, the ones that look more asymmetric are often inflammatory and inflammatory diseases can often do what the hell they like. Even if they have a, a set pattern, they'll, they'll, they'll always deviate from that and you'll have um, exceptions. Great. So I guess leading on from the three separate how we classify neuropathies that you mentioned so i guess at this point we'll focus down on the polyneuropathies if that's okay so i guess how would you approach a patient with a suspected peripheral or polyneuropathy if you saw them in a clinic setting um if if someone's presenting with suspected polyneuropathy they're usually going to be presenting with broadly symmetrical symptoms I suggested so they and um, that may be positive sensory symptoms such as tingling, maybe negative sensory symptoms such as numbness, um, or there may be motor symptoms if it's a predominantly motor problem. Um, so 
and often, you know, particularly in neuromuscular disease, the examination is very useful. So you might have someone presenting with tingling in all four limbs, and you know that that could be a, a cervical cord problem, or it could be a diffuse uh, problem of the nerves. And it's often the examination that can really make a difference. It's one area of neurology where it re- really can make a big difference to examine your patient. So, um, but, but certainly, someone presenting with tingling uh, in in their limbs one often thinks is this a neuropathy but of, of course it could be a central problem the the approach really is is as always you take a good history and and then your ideas bubble up as you're taking the history about about their problems um and important factors as always are uh, the the tempo of the illness and that will give you a sense of what kind of etiology you may be facing if it's something very chronic for example then you know could this be more of a genetic problem is it is it is it subacute uh, or or even acute when you might think well this this is more likely to be an inflammatory problem um or or is it you know hyperacute when you might think well actually this is probably a, a vascular problem so um on one important principle when assessing neuropathies or you know is is to decide about whether you think it's a length dependent problem and and just because that's something that very strongly suggests a nerve problem so by length so you can distinguish length dependent from length related most nerve problems the the longer nerves are more likely to be hit i guess there's more of them um but if it's something that's upsetting the axon then by definition it should be length dependent because the long axons are always more vulnerable so if it's a sort of toxic process for example um that's something that may upset the axon then you 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 would you would expect to see this length dependent pattern which means it necessarily starts in the, the feet or the toes and creeps up and it's only ever going to appear in the hands by the time it's reached the mid shin which you can sort of stretch your arm out and and see it comes to about the mid shin if you're stretching it along your along your legs it's all it's all about the length you know, avoid the term glove and stocking because a length dependent neuropathy will only briefly be glove and stocking when it's passing through that 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 phase but it starts off as a sock and then it's going to be more of a a tall sock going up to the mid shin and then you might have some tingling in the fingers and, and then you may get the more higher higher stocking and glove loss um, if it were a sensory polyneuropathy um, and and so understanding understanding that's important. If it's non-length dependent, it means there may be proximal features early on. Then that's very helpful because it tells you it's not a primarily an axonal process, or at least it's highly suggestive of an inflammatory process, which generally affects the myelin first. Although there are exceptions, for example, forms of GBS where the um, antibody attack is at the node of Rombier. Uh, so those will of course behend, may may be in a behave in a non present in a non-length dependent manner because. It's not about the length of the axon as such. It's it's, it's about where the inflammation is occurring. So uh, yeah, those are those are two very important principles. Um, we can also think about the, the different fibers, so sensory neuropathies versus motor neuropathies versus autonomic neuropathies. Many of the sort of effect older people will often be pure sensory, although they can have motor involvement. But where there are other things such as autonomic involvement that can be very helpful in identifying the probable cause um, another important concept is thinking about large and versus small fiber neuropathies um, in, and that's a very interesting topic and that we're discovering that small fiber dysfunction is important in conditions such as fibromyalgia in a way that we're just beginning to understand and, and so there's, a, there's a, a lot more understanding to be done there
Um, so large fibre neuropathies are the ones you can detect on examination and nerve conduction studies, whereas small fibre, by definition, you wouldn't find abnormal examination findings except perhaps some, lo some loss of uh, pain or temperature sense, perhaps. Um, so, uh, the, and the nerve conduction studies, by definition, would be normal if it's a pure small fibre neuropathy. But, of course, many will large fibre neuropathies also involve the small fibres, you know, hence diabetes, often starts actually as small fibres initially with burning pains in the feet and, and later you get the large fibre dysfunction with sensory loss and, uh, and, and loss of ankle jerks and so on. So um, we also think about acquired versus um, hereditary uh, and that should be easy to tease apart and that hereditary problems generally start young and progress very slowly, um, although you can be caught out because people will often say that they've been absolutely normal until a year or, two, year or two ago when actually they've always had a funny walk and it's only got a bit worse and it started to affect their function when they've actually picked it up. Um, okay, so yeah, that's probably all to say there for now. Okay, great, thanks. So in patients with a suspected peripheral neuropathy, do you have any initial screening investigations? So I guess this will depend on the clinical scenario that's presented in front of you, but... For example, I guess between small fibre or large fibre or predominantly sensory, predominantly motor, do you have any clinical situations in which you would think of additional tests to screen for, for causes of those conditions? Yeah. So uh, I know when you've, you've done your assessment and you've suspected there's a peripheral neuropathy from the history and, and, and perhaps the examination as well, and you've gone a bit further than that and said, well, actually, I suspect a polyneuropathy or, or perhaps a mononeurosis multiplex or... Uh, mononeuropathy, but sticking with polyneuropathy, if, if, if you've, you've, you're suspecting that, then I, I would also want you to go a bit further than that, really, and say, well, do I think this is length-dependent, hence axonal, or do I think this is demyonating, in which case, you know, it, we've got a presentation that's non-length-dependent, and that might be because there are some proximal features, such as some weakness in, in, in proximally in hip flexion, which, of course, would not be length-dependent feature or sensory ataxia which uh, you know you with peripheral proprioceptive loss you do not get per, um, ataxia you may be a bit unsteady if you're especially if you're elderly and you've got numb feet you, it might make you a bit more unsteady but sensory ataxia with that sort of uh, typical broad-based gait is a, is a sign of, of proximal sensory involvement so it's a non-length dependent feature so anything like that you're going okay this is potentially demyelinating and treatable and more interesting, so you know, then say if you've got a 70-year-old person with tingly feet for a couple of years where there's really not a great deal to do. So and the important thing if you have got that person with just tingly feet is just to say, well, what's, um, what's, good, what's, good, for, what's for good for nerve health? Because most people, you don't find a clear cause in this sort of bracket. So what, what's, good, what's good for nerve health and test, test things that might be worth replacing if low, like B12 um, or, for, or for thyroid problems? And also doing a paraprotein screen because paraproteinemic neuropathy, which is a demyelinating neuropathy usually, can um, can present innocuously at first with and look like a, a length-dependent sensory axonal polyneuropathy, and later they develop early sensory ataxia and uh, or, or trauma or other features that might make you realise. So it's always worth doing a paraprotein screen, and for me that would be a serum and urine electrophoresis along with a serum immunoglobulins. Okay, great. So you mentioned earlier about when nerve conduction studies might be useful. For example, in small fibre, they should be normal. 
But when would you consider performing nerve conduction studies and what additional information do they give you? In, in the example of just the, you know, the, the elderly sensory polyneuropathy, then I'm, I'm not necessarily going to do those. If I've examined the patient and they've got a supportive examination um, with, say, distal vibration loss in the toes and uh, loss of ankle jerks, then I'm I'm quite happy to make the diagnosis and and explain to them the, the natural history, which is generally quite benign. It may be painful for some, um, but it, it usually doesn't cause disability. If we're talking about a, if I'm suspecting a, a demyelinating process or an acquired process, then um, absolutely, then nerve conduction studies are are essential. So if that if that's a possibility, then I'd I'd want to look at that. And and you can get sort of my the the, the acquired. The demyelinating polyneuropathies can can be are incredibly varied. So, you know, most end up falling under the bracket of CIDP, which stands for chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyradiculoneuropathy. Um, but it's such a varied condition with so many different types of presentation. So, to answer your your question directly about what additional information does nerve conduction studies give you, um, it may um, help. Can confirm your clinical impressions, or and sometimes it will surprise you. So you can actually test uh, the speed um, of the conduction through nerves, and you can check the amplitude. Um, so you know it's very crudely done. It's you know people just to use electrocute a portion of the nerve and have a have a, a recorder over over a bit of the muscle if they're testing a motor nerve, and then they may uh, stimulate the nerve in, in different locations. And you get out a tape measure and, and then w- work out the distance and, and calculate the speed and look at the amplitude. Uh, so, it, and it's really just a, an extension of the examination. So it's not like doing a scan where you see a tumor or you don't see a tumor. So, I and mean, I've I've seen mistakes made when you've you've had a neurologist say this isn't GBS, for example, the, the history is wrong for this, and then a neurophysiologist just does the tests and goes, oh, this would be consistent with GBS, and then the, the, the doctors have thought, oh, it's shown GBS, we don't need to go back to our neurologist because they were obviously wrong, this test has shown GBS, and that, you know, it can't do that, it can only show you the nature of the pathology, so it will show you if there's demyelination, it will show you if there's been axonal damage, uh, so it can tell you whether it's axonal versus demyelinating, it's a little bit more complex than that, in that you may, you may get secondary axonal damage when there's been a lot of demyelination and you may get uh, if you also if you've got primary demyelinating problem or sorry primary axonal problem rather you you may lose the fastest axon so you'll go, you'll get secondary a bit of demyelination so uh, working out whether it's primary demyelinating or primary um, axonal is is the most useful aspect of nerve conduction studies they're often partnered with emg which stands for electromyography and that can be very useful not only because it can also identify myopathic changes in muscle when it's a muscle problem, as well as neurogenic changes when it's a nerve problem, but it can help you interpret the results of the nerve conduction studies. For example, to help if if you've got a a, a very low low potential, it might be that you've got axonal damage, but it could be there was distal conduction block, for example, and the EMG might show you that actually this there is a lot of axonal loss here, or it might might hint that maybe you're dealing with with some conduction block which is where uh if that's happening very distally so that the conduction can't get through you're going to get small axonal response but it doesn't signify axonal damage um but you don't need to go into that level of detail to understand um, when it's needed 
which might own, might be to look for a demyelinating polyneuropathy, but might also be to confirm uh, a mononeuropathy or determine its severity um, if you're considering intervention, such as decompression of a carpal tunnel, for example. Okay, great. So we'll discuss a few cases um, to discuss things in a bit more detail now, if that's okay. Um, so the first case that we have is a 68-year-old male <coughs> who presents with an eight-month history of numbness and tingling of his hands and legs. He also feels unsteady on his feet and has a weak grip. There are no systemic symptoms and he takes aspirin only. On examination, there is no muscle atrophy, wrist extension, finger and thumb abduction are 4 out of 5, with proximal lower, limb, lower limbs 4 out of 5. Reflexes are diminished throughout. Sensory exam reveals impaired vibration to the ankles and wrists and JPS is impaired in the toes. Pinprick is impaired up to the mid-tibia. There is a mildly ataxic gait and Romberg's is positive. So from this clinical case, are there any clues from the history and examination as to what the underlying cause or mechanism could be? Um, certainly. So I mean, you start with the history. I mean, immediately we've got a 68-year-old gentleman. So he's at, uh, uh, presenting with numbness and tingling to the hands and legs going on for about eight months. So he's certainly of an age where you where getting a, a sensory external polyneuropathy is very, very common. But I am immediately thinking this sounds too severe for that because, you know, an eight-month history, if it was an axonal polyneuropathy, you'd expect to, to still just be in the feet, but we're getting told that it's affecting his hands and his legs. It sounds quite pervasive. So immediately it sounds quite... Um, becomes severe quite quickly. So we've got a, a, a subacute onset of significant sensory symptoms. Um, and then we also told he's unsteady on his feet, which as I've already mentioned, no, for a 68-year-old gentleman, it's not really right if it, if it was this was a, 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 a distal process or at least a length-dependent process. We've been told he's noticed weak grip. So that's the, four, the grip muscles located in the forearm. So again, this is all looking very non-length-dependent. Uh, and then we come to the examination, which is very helpful and support. Well, it, it basically confirms what's reported in the history as being due to some sensory ataxia and there is weakness as well, which again is very non-length dependent. We've got diminished reflexes consistent with a peripheral process rather than, a, say, a, a cervical spinal process. And you know, therefore, we, we, we're not thinking about MRI of the neck. We're thinking about nerve conduction studies as the most appropriate test to, 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 to do next. Although usually in practice, you're going to do a lot of basic blood tests first, such as your B12 thyroid function, uh, paraprotein screen. And because we're suspecting inflammatory etiology, you might push the boat out and do some, some other, other blood tests at that stage, although many, many of those could wait. For example, some people would be keen to look at conditions that can be associated with inflammatory nerve conditions, such as, or, or even cause them directly, such as HIV or hepatitis. But I, I, there wouldn't, wouldn't be essential at this stage, and I probably wouldn't do them. Okay, great. So I guess from from the summary of this, you're thinking of an inflammatory non-length dependent. Yeah, so I'm I'm thinking this is a, a, a subacute, quite severe neuropathy, uh, which is non-length dependent and inflammatory in nature. So this would be a typical history of CIDP. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So the next case we'll move on to is a 50-year-old female who presents with burning 
feet for the last six months. Oh, I forgot to mention the, the glucose, of course. <laughs> as, as, a, uh, as part of my general neuropathy screen, always check a glucose and an HbA1c. I usually do both. I might just do a glucose if they're fasted, um, but often we will check both. Okay, yeah. right. That's still important when you think it's inflammatory. Um, CIDP is associated with diabetes, so diabetes is a risk factor for both infla- uh, demyelinating and, and external conditions. So the second case is a 50-year-old female who presents with burning feet for the last six months. She works as a chef and stands for prolonged periods and her feet can feel hot or cold. She has no past medical history or family history and she's systemically well. She's slightly overweight. There is loss of pin and temperature sensation to the great toe, but strength, vibration and reflexes are normal. Okay, so we've got a young woman with what could be a length-dependent process, um, and we've got no real signs apart from some, uh, maybe a loss of pin, pin temperature sensation. So, you know, this very much sounds like a small fiber neuropathy. And it, of course, theoretically, it could be a problem in the spinal cord. Um, that'd be very unusual just to cause burning feet. Uh, especially if it's just, if it is slow, it doesn't say whether it's getting worse or not, but and it 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 wouldn't uh, so i i would not be th- thinking to uh, scan the spine unless there were central signs and i'd be more more wish there aren't so i'd be more thinking this sounds seems like a small fiber neuropathy i suppose the hard thing is it's hard to prove that uh, some centers do skin biopsy which can be used to prove small fiber neuropathy um i think the trouble is is that that you know a lot of conditions that with, as I mentioned, fibromyalgia is something that's associated with small fibre dysfunction and may have abnormal small fibre biopsy. Uh, so I think interpreting it can be different as there may be a lot of situations. And also, what would you do about it? Because at the moment, there's not really much to do about it. Oh, and there's interesting work being done to explore explore the small fibre neuropathies and some appear to be inflammatory associated with autoimmune disease and may respond to immunotherapy, but that's very controversial and far from being proven so uh, i think this is an area that could, could grow in the future uh, but certainly at the at the moment where we stand now i you know i, I would i tend to be quite conservative with these patients partly we don't have access to skin biopsy here they do it to manchester but you know i just don't think it's clinically useful um to, to really prove i think it's you know this sort of history and, and examination you'd say well this is a small fiber neuropathy and you know we don't know much about them. If, if they had a widespread pain, pain disorder as well, then say, well, it's probably all part of this fibromyalgia complex in this patient. If it's an isolated thing, you would you know, ask about family history, which of course here we're told that there isn't. Made sure we considered any potential sinister causes. So, um, I mean, some more severe neuropathies can st- can start as a small fiber process. So uh, often it would be about reassessment. So, um, for example, amyloid neuropathies can be very severe and can, with the classic Portuguese mutation for the, the TTR, um, hereditary amyloidosis TTR can, can present as a small fibre neuropathy, um, although the, the type of mutations you tend to get in this country don't usually present that way. Um, di- diabetes, of course, would be a, a, a major uh, thing to consider. And in, in, in in, we now know that even people with impaired glucose tolerance can um, develop neuropathy. So you know that that's something important to exclude. Um, but it, yeah, often with these sorts of patients, I would just explain that you know, they have 
know, we, we do some basic tests but often don't find a clear cause for this sort of problem. And the management, if it's painful, would be with drugs like amitriptyline or nortriptyline if, if that proves sedating. And I increasingly use nortriptyline first line unless people have difficulty getting to sleep uh, because of the discomfort, in which case I'll go for amitriptyline. Okay, great. So for the last case that we have is a 55-year-old male who presents with a 12-month history of multiple falls and numbness to his hands and feet. He works as a builder and drinks a moderate amount of alcohol. He's lost five kilograms in weight over the last six months, but is otherwise systemically well. On examination, there is loss of vibration to the elbows and knees, with reduced pin and temperature to the wrists and ankles. Reflexes were absent, Romberg's was positive, and power was normal throughout. Okay, so we've got a case that's it's fairly similar to the first case, except that there's no weakness. Um, um, but we've got, over, over the past year, severe sensory ataxia leading to falls, sounds like. Um, and he's, he's certainly got a positive Romberg's test, absent reflexes and significant sensory signs. So again, coming on this quickly, it's not, this isn't, and with the sensory ataxia, this is not a length-dependent process. Um, the examination does suggest it's peripheral. Um, you've got to be... Um, so, uh, oh no, I'd certainly want nerve conduction studies on this patient to confirm this, and that would be my first t test. Um, and you, you might also do include in your blood tests things such as treponemal serology to exclude syphilis and other, and, and of course B12 can affect the dorsal columns. So, uh, and you, you might, if, if appropriate, look for other things such as copper, they'd say a gastrectomy patient or um, using zinc, zinc supplements. So uh, there are other things you might test early on that are not purely in the peripheral zone, but otherwise I'd do my, my standard screen and arrange neurophysiology, which if this is essentially ganglionopathy, which one might be suspecting this, this situation, you might expect to see a complete loss of sensory responses. Of course, you can get sensory CIDP, and this could be a um, such a thing, and looking for demyelination in the motor nerves would, of course, give you a clue to, for that. And again, the paraprotein screen is essential, not just because of paraproteinemic neuropathy, but there are rarer CIDP mimics, such as poems, um, and one can test a, a VEGF if suspecting that. But with this presentation, I'm suspecting a sensory ganglionopathy. Uh, and this is where these are, are rare. It's where the ganglia are affected. So it's, it's going to be non-length dependent because it's not axonal. And it will, um, is associated with two big conditions, one being Sjogren's syndrome, the other is, pa is a paraneoplastic disease. So it's a one of the classic paraneoplastic syndromes. Um, so these patients, if, if all investigations are unrewarding, I'll often go and do a, a, a PET-CT to make absolutely sure I'm not missing an early malignancy related. Many of them do turn out to be idiopathic. Um, other important causes are alcohol nutrition, um, as as leading so poor nutrition often associated with alcohol excess can present like this as well. And as to, to clues from the history and examination is the underlying cause in this patient. Um, did we get told he'd lost weight? So one would therefore be thinking is this a, a malignancy? Um, and that's where one would be doing a chest X-ray and CT etc.
And of course, neuronal antibodies can be done, which can be, they're not all that useful. So they take ages to come back and are often negative, even if it is perineoplastic. But the, uh, the, the, uh, you, you may find the, the relevant um, neuronal antibody um, in, in the patient with this sort of presentation. Great. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for your input today as a whole. That was really useful. And thank you to everyone who's listening to this. Thanks very much. Thank Bye you. now. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk. Thank you.